Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Stupid blister pack. This is so stupid design. Do not open it that way, Earthling. You will stab yourself, and the constantly moving fluid that delivers oxygen in your body will flow out of you. Uh, I just want my brand new Xbox controller. Are you from outer space? I have come here from a distant world to tell you not to open clamshell packs that way. Please use a common rotary can opener. It is much safer. You came all the way here to tell me that? Yes. Oh, also, the dress is blue and black. The dress? The dress. Oh, you mean the one that's totally gold and white? Don't make me hurt you. I'm just saying. Anything else? I would, at this time, like to meet MacGyver. MacGyver is not real. No way. Yeah, totally. He's made up. But he fashioned a landmine out of pine cones. I'm really sorry. They are talking about maybe making a reboot. It will not be the same. Okay, so you, you traveled all this way to give me a safety tip and to talk about the dress and MacGyver? Don't you have anything more profound to say? There's no time like the present. That's a cliché. It is. On my planet, we just realized that time represents photon motion, and this led us to a startling conclusion about the difference between time and the present. We always knew that. Here's a mixtape for the journey home. It will take 13,000 years in your time. So you might have to listen to it all the way through twice. And you might also enjoy the show on extraterrestrial contact. Now, most aliens find him through Airbnb... Colin McEnroe. They increasingly do use Airbnb when they come here. So, because uh, it's just so much cheaper, you know? I mean, it really, like, a hotel for uh, everybody on a spaceship is very expensive. So, um, I haven't looked forward to a show this much in a long time. Not only because I think the, the topic of extraterrestrial life, of life among the stars, not only do I find that fascinating, but in my other capacity as a political reporter, I am so sick of this election season, so sick of the candidates, so sick of every single aspect of this, that the notion of encountering a life form that's not from here is unusually appealing at this moment. So, we have a a pretty fascinating a group of uh, people to talk about it, and fascinating not only in and of themselves, but uh, because of the number of different angles, vectors, you might say, that they represent. Uh, so we're going to start with somebody who's been on our show before. I don't even know if he remembers that, but I think one book ago, Paul Davies was here. Uh, that was for, I think, the book Are We Alone? Uh, he's Regent Professor of Physics at Arizona State University, where he directs the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science. He's the author, most recently, of The Fifth Miracle, The Search for the Origin and Meaning of Life. Also joining us by phone in this segment is Lee Billings, editor at Scientific American and author of, author of Five Billion Years of Solitude, The Search for Life Among the Stars. Um, a little bit later, we're going to talk to Brian Trent. He's here uh, in the building right now. He's a science fiction writer and lecturer. Uh, and Because one of the things that is interesting is the way that science thinks about this and the way science fiction thinks about it. And they're not always exactly the same. And it could be argued that science fiction people are maybe willing to think a little bit more outside the normal paradigm of life. And then um, lastly, we're going to talk to a theologian because obviously the minute we encounter life somewhere else, 
there are some pretty obvious theological dilemmas that come up. Maybe they're easy to resolve. Maybe they're not. We'll talk about that later. We're going to begin with Paul Davies and with Lee Billings. Um, so uh, let us indeed begin. First of all, Paul Davies, maybe we could just begin with what's sometimes called Fermi's paradox, that that you know, numerically, some people would say just considering how big the universe is, how much stuff there is, not only in the universe, but in the galaxy, how many stars there are and planets around stars. And there just should be, some people would say, life somewhere and probably life a lot of somewheres. And some of that life ought to be capable of being recognized by us, spotted by us. So the Fermi paradox, the question is, where is everybody? Why are we alone? Is there some easy answer to that question? Uh, well, there's a very, very easy answer, which is that we are alone in the universe. Uh, now, you referred to Fermi's paradox. So uh, it was uh, due to Enrico Fermi, uh, an Italian physicist uh, genius who worked on the Manhattan Project uh, during World War II. And immediately after World War II, uh, there was a spate of uh, what were then called flying saucer reports. Uh, and Fermi did a very simple calculation. Earth is about a third as old as the universe. There were stars and planets around uh, long before Earth even existed. And even traveling at modest speeds, there's been plenty of time for an expansionary extraterrestrial civilization to spread out across the galaxy and colonize the whole, uh, the whole of the galaxy, including Earth. Uh, so then Fermi said, well, if they, if they exist out there, then they should be here already. There's been plenty of time. As they're not here, because of course he didn't believe the UFO reports, we can conclude uh, that they're not out there either. Uh, and, and just before I wrap up, let me say that your opening remarks, uh, people often fall for this fallacy. They think just because of the sheer size of the universe, the sheer number of stars and uh, planets and potential real estate for life, uh, that somehow it has to occur. Uh, but this is a deeply fallacious argument. Uh, we have no idea how non-life turned into life. We don't know what the mechanism was. We can't estimate the odds. It's easily believable that the odds of life popping up on an Earth-like planet uh, over, say, a billion years are one in a trillion, 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 which would mean there would certainly be no life anywhere else in our galaxy or within the observable universe. It's very easy to believe that. We can't say otherwise at this stage. So is that where you rest, basically, that that um, we can't say otherwise? I mean, do, do you have a reasonable expectation uh, in your lifetime of seeing something, even if it's uh, a microbe, even if it's something that is not easily categorizable as life from Earth? Uh, uh, the, um, the, uh, so just to repeat this, <laughs> we have no idea how non-life turned into life. We don't know how life began. It could be a stupendously uh, low probability event, an incredible chemical freak that has occurred only once in the observable universe. That was the standard position among scientists when I was a student. Uh, today, the pendulum seems to have swung, but the science remains the same. Uh, we don't know. Uh, and It's very easy to imagine that the transition from non-life to life requires an incredible conjunction of very special circumstances and that it's happened only once in the observable universe. So uh, I can't answer your question. Nobody can answer your question because we don't know what did it. If we 
knew the mechanism that turned non-life into life, we could have a go at estimating the odds. Contrast this, by the way, with Darwinian evolution. Uh, we un understand how once life gets going on a planet, it can evolve from simple microbes to complex beings like ourselves. We know what that mechanism was. It's called Darwinian evolution. It's still very hard for us to estimate how likely it is that uh, a life with a planet with simple life would evolve complex life. We don't know how to do that calculation, but at least we know the mechanism. When it comes to the origin of life, we don't know what that physical process was. So uh, we are simply uh, unable to answer your question. Nobody can provide an answer to it. Um, actually, I do remember from your first book, it was the first time I encountered this, so not your first book, the most recent book of yours that I read. I think it's where I first encountered the, the... Yeah, The Eerie Silence, is, it's yes. called, and, it's, uh, and it addresses this very issue. Yeah. But of course, I'm open to the, the alternative, which is that the universe is teeming with life. I hope it is. I hope the transition from non-life to life is something that occurs with law-like inevitability. But if there is a law that fast-tracks matter to life, we haven't discovered it yet. People talk about it, but there's no uh, scientific evidence for it. So we're simply left completely in the dark at this stage. Let's get uh, Lee Billings into this conversation. So, I mean, the other way that our minds work is that when we see something that we can't explain some other way, we get very intrigued. And, and uh, you know, one of the odd bits of news recently is uh, KIC 8462852, uh, which is this very distant star, uh, Lee, which has a, a habit of flickering. Something is making the star dim drastically every few years. And so in a way that, you know, runs kind of counter to, to the scientific caution that Paul Davies uh, is is speaking out for right here. There, there are astronomers coming forward saying, you know, it might be something that somebody made. It might be like a solar collector or something like that. I mean, is it uh, is it reasonable to have that kind of a conversation? I think so, yes. But but at the same time, I mean, let's, let's be clear what we're talking about. So um, you're referring to something that's colloquially called uh, Tabby's Star, after um, the the person who discovered it, uh, and it uh, was found in the data of the Kepler Space Telescope, uh, which looks for planets around other stars um, by uh, essentially the shadows they cast towards us here on Earth. So you can imagine a planet flickering across or flickering across uh, the the face of its star, kind of like a like a firefly uh, crossing a searchlight or something like that, and we can detect that very faint shadow. Um, here from Earth, uh, just by a little dimming in the star's light, we can we can see. So, uh, in the case of Tabby's star, uh, the the dimming of the star, as you've said, is, is is enormous. I don't actually have the numbers in front of me, but it's it's very 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 hard, if not impossible, to explain as um, something prosaic like a like a planet um, or even um, a companion star that's whirling around this thing. And, and part of the reason why it's hard to explain isn't just how deep. And, and big the shadow is. It's that um, it doesn't seem, at least last I checked, to have much of a periodicity. Uh, planets, obviously, uh, and stars as well, whirl around um, in, in very precise and, and, and steady orbits, right? You know, the Earth takes 365 days around the sun, um, and that's how it's going to be for quite some time. Uh, this doesn't seem to have a period, periodicity to it. So uh, it is a very odd signal, and the reason why you might think that it could be something like a uh, giant solar collector is basically from uh, really wild extrapolations of our situation here on Earth. Um, uh, we're, we're drastically increasing our energy usage all the time. That's been the history for about the past, I think, five centuries or so. Uh, you can imagine a future where we will no longer be able to um, 
meet our energy needs if they keep expanding, um, even if we do something like uh, paper over the entire planet with solar collectors that, that work at perfect efficiency. So if, if that is a future for us, if that's something where civilizations go, where they get more and more energy hungry, you can imagine some very advanced civilization trying to harvest more of its uh, star's energy more of its starlight by building solar collectors uh, around it, you know, essentially dismantling a planet or two to do that. Uh, this is um, a popular idea that was uh, first uh, proposed, I believe, by uh, Freeman Dyson, a, a physicist at uh, the Institute for Advanced Study in, Pr in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, so, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a pretty wild idea, but uh, there's definitely people out there who take it quite seriously. Uh, I would say in this case, however, for Tabby Star, the chances are uh, that it's something more prosaic, perhaps, like uh, maybe maybe big swarms of comets that are being uh, disrupted and clattering against each other and, and creating huge clouds of debris. Something like that could, in theory, explain it, but it is also a stretch. Right. Uh, I should say that the um, the Dyson device that you're talking about, although it was first popularized by Freeman Dyson, it was actually first described in 1937 in a science fiction novel, which is why, in fact, uh, one, of the, one of the many reasons it makes sense to have science fiction writer on uh, later in this show. Well, Lee Billings, let me just stay with you for uh, a second on that narrative, and then we'll, we'll come back to, to Paul. But, um, you know, one of the arguments that is sometimes made is if there were some kind of intelligent life that, you know, it might be on, on a a timer, you know, that it, it one of the things that that intelligent life does is gets bigger and more demanding on its own environment. And it makes things that can break its own environment. It makes things that can exhaust its own environment. Maybe one of the reasons we don't hear a lot uh, the, from other civilizations is they wipe themselves out. Uh, that, that's possible, yeah. I think you can, again, uh, extrapolating from our own situation here, easily um, kind of tell those sorts of stories about putative cosmic civilizations that may exist out there. I mean, that, I, I want to just uh, you know, get back to Paul's point about how um, what we're talking about here is, is really at the fringe of science still because we're dealing with a sample size of one, um, let alone the problem of how did life evolve. When you're talking about the, the intentions and motivations, and desires uh, and capabilities of, uh, of, of other civilizations for which we have no evidence whatsoever. Um, that's, that's quite a stretch. So, so it, it's, the best we're left doing is clutching at the straws that, that exist in our own history and in our own experience. Um, and and that, that's a common thread that we see throughout uh, searches for, for life and intelligence in the universe throughout history. We, we see that, that uh, every time we think we have the answer, the, or, or rather a hint of the answer, those hints uh, those those uh, intuitions are really based on on our own our own experiences and our own kind of biases. So it's very very tough to to get out of that to get out of that box. And uh, we're now starting to do that more and more actually because we have various ways of studying uh, other planets and things like uh, looking for things potentially like uh, let's say um, chlorofluorocarbons that that have uh, caused the ozone hole here on Earth. We can imagine building a very very large very expensive space telescope uh, in the future um, that could potentially image other Earth like planets around nearby stars and, and maybe even look for those sorts of uh, atmospheric signatures. Now, does that mean there's a civilization there pumping out CFCs and destroying its ozone? Well, w I don't know if we'd find that, but we could, could certainly look. 
So, Paul Davies, given the sample size of one, given everything that you've said, what's the argument for looking or putting a lot of effort into this? I mean, recently we've seen $100 million from Yuri Milner and Stephen Hawking to fund Breakthrough Listen, which is a massive new uh, Earth-based effort to find extraterrestrial life and Breakthrough Message uh, to to craft the perfect message uh, to E.T. There's lots of other efforts like this. Um, What's the argument for doing it if, in fact— it's also remote or unknowable uh, if the probabilities are so impossible to suss out. Why give a whoop in the high wind about the whole thing? Well, when in science you're faced with the unknown, the way to settle that is to do the experiment, uh, go about uh, taking a look. And so I'm a very strong supporter of SETI. I always have been, whilst remaining skeptical about the fundamental issues. So Lee was mentioning a whole string of things we don't know about, including the lifetime of a civilization once it gets going. Uh, Most of my colleagues who think about SETI seem to be more concerned about issues like that than what I think is the biggest unknown, which is, the I said earlier, the transition from non-life to life. That's where the big error bars are. And there's a good chance that uh, we're just Earth-based exploration Uh, or within our solar system, might get around that problem in the foreseeable future if we found a second sample of life, just one other organism, one microbe that was life but not as we know it, that would remove that issue. Uh, And then the way would be open, I think, to worrying about the other things, like how how many planets with life would have intelligence on it. But I I just think uh, that it makes sense to look, because the consequences of discovering not just life but intelligent life beyond Earth are so momentous, it would surely be the greatest scientific discovery of all time. And to devote some small fraction of Earth's resources to looking uh, seems to me a very worthwhile thing. A hundred million dollars is a great deal of of money, of course, to to anybody, uh, including to Yuri Milner, who's been so generous here. Um, But nevertheless, in terms of what gets spent on almost anything else you like to think about, cigarettes or sport, whatever. Uh, of course, it's a tiny, tiny amount. And there's, there's, there's a lot riding on this. There's a final point I'd like to make, which is the very fact that we are on this radio show now discussing this is testament to the fact that there is a deep fascination that everybody has about hu- the hu- place of human beings in the universe. Uh, th- this, I think, is particularly important for young people. They should deliberate on such things as what is life, what is intelligence, what are we we doing here on planet Earth, how do we fit into the universe. So even if SETI never succeeds, I think it's a, a very, very good exercise that we come together and discuss such things. And, and as we go along here with our science fiction writer and our theologian, we'll get even deeper into that. But before we go to that, though, I mean, I want to ask both of you, and I'll come back to you on this, Lee. I mean, you know, we, we can look way out to, you know, to things like far, far distant stars that are 1,481 light years away, which means whatever that thing is that's floating around in front of that star, um, it was we're seeing it in the 6th century A.D. on Earth. But, you know, whatever it was that happened a long time 
time ago. But I mean, there's also a lot of interest in just our immediate neighborhood. What's up there on Mars? You know, um, uh, has there been life on Mars? Uh, is there still some kind of incredibly primitive life on Mars? Uh, it, can life have arisen in space and come here to Earth? You know, did life start on Earth or, or did it start in our uh, outer space neighborhood? So, so Lee, among those questions, and I know Paul has a lot of thoughts about these, but Lee, um, what intrigues you the most about all that? Um, well, I think I, think, uh, I wanted to say I, I, I agree with everything that Paul said earlier about the reason and rationale of SETI, the notion that, that, that finding intelligent life would be a huge uh, sea change in our civilization and how we view ourselves in the cosmos. But for a minute, I, I, and, and all the questions you just asked feed into this thing I'm about to say, but I, for a minute I, I, want to, um, I want to just take the counterpoint uh, because a lot of people would imagine, well, what if we look and we just don't find anything? Um, now, you can't prove a negative in science. Uh, however, you know, if we really, really take a good shot at it and, and, and spend perhaps as much as we spend on cigarettes or sport, or even a tenth or a hundredth of as much, um, that would be a lot of money and a lot of effort, more than we've done so far. Uh, and if we did all this and we looked out there at the nearest, let's say, hundred or thousand or ten thousand neighboring stars uh, and looked for all the planets out there and looked at them and could tell whether or not there was life, perhaps, by investigating them really closely with big telescopes. Um, and we didn't find anything. We didn't find another Earth. We didn't find any little green men trying to talk to us. Uh, that may not tell us that we're really, truly, totally cosmically alone, the only life in the universe, perhaps, but it would certainly tell us that what we have here on Earth is very special, and our lives are very special, our civilization is very special. And this is against hundreds of years of orthodoxy in science. Remember uh, Copernicus when he said that the Earth actually doesn't, uh, doesn't, isn't the center of the universe and it goes around the sun. You know, that, that started a whole demotion that says you're not special, you're not important, you don't matter, we're just little flecks of dust, mean nothing. Maybe that's still true, but if we actually have this context that we can understand ourselves in, whether or not the universe is filled with life or is devoid of it, that really gives essential perspective to us here. Um, so, Paul Davies, I know that you're very interested in, first of all, where we should look for life, even whether it should be uh, walking around on a planet or inside the crust of a planet. But, but I mean, we, you know, Mars is our neighbor. There's certainly some interesting things going on in Mars. I mean, in our immediate neighborhood, how, how interested should we be in the notion of life? Well, Mars is my favorite. And one of the things that I get angry about is that every time... NASA spent, sends a spacecraft to Mars, it's presented as the search for life. And the one thing that they are not doing is looking for life. They haven't done since 1976 with the Viking missions. NASA adamantly refuses to do any biological experiments on Mars. And, and so I get angry about the fact that they uh, s seem to present uh, their Mars exploration as a search for life. At, the, at best, it is a search to see if there were once conditions that may have been conducive to some form of life. Uh, so it's very vague. However, I think that there is a chance for life on Mars, uh, probably in the deep subsurface, uh, but it comes with a big caveat. Uh, we know Mars and Earth trade rocks. Comets and asteroids hit these planets uh, with enough force to splatter rocks all around the solar system. We've got three or four Mars rocks uh, at our university here. We have a good meteorite collection. And if rocks can travel between Mars and Earth, so can microbes uh, cocooned inside them. Uh, and I think it's almost inevitable that over the history of the solar system, Earth microbes have gone to Mars, and if there were ever any Mars microbes, they would have come to Earth. So given that these two planets intermingle their microbiology, we may go all the way to Mars and discover, yes, there is life there, 
primitive sort of life in the subsurface, but it's just good old Earth life. It got there from here, or vice versa. It's entirely possible that all life on Earth started on Mars. So we lack that second genesis. What we, we need to answer the question, are we alone in the universe, is, is there a second sample of life? We may not have to go all the way to Mars to find it. We could find it right here on Earth. There could be a so-called shadow biosphere of alternative life right under our noses, or as one commentator once said, even in our noses. Uh, <laughs> we, we simply haven't looked. We, we cannot be sure that all microbial life on Earth is the same life. We haven't studied it enough. Right. I, I want to come back to that in our next segment. Uh, it's a, a perfect thing to begin the next segment with. So, uh, yeah, we need to talk a little bit about what uh, life is, what life could be. Uh, so let's take a break. We'll come back with more of this after the following break. Said this planet is an awful menace. Let's go back to where we came from. Two little men in a flying saucer just didn't care to stay. No, no. Said it's too peculiar here. Headed for the stratosphere and quickly all right, we're back. We're talking about uh, extraterrestrial life. Uh, we've been talking to Lee Billings, uh, editor at Scientific American and author of Five Billion Years of Solitude, The Search for Life Among the Stars. You may stay with, with us for a few more minutes. Uh, Paul Davies is with us, I think, for the duration, regent uh, professor of physics at Arizona State University, where he directs the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science, author most recently of The Fifth Miracle, The Search for the Origin and Meaning of Life. In studio with me right now is Brian Trent. He's an award-winning science fiction writer and and lecturer. He's written for Analog, Cosmos, Fantasy, and Science Fiction, and more. His newest book is Last of the Shark Speakers, and you can find his work at www.briantrent.com. So um, I want to just sort of segue uh, to this from what uh, you, Paul Davies, were saying before. You know, I mean, even what we understand to be life on Earth changes a little bit from time to time. You know, we went from two domains to a third domain. Uh, there are all these extremophiles uh, that are living in places that basically they quote unquote shouldn't be living with dangerous levels of acidity, cold, heat, radioactivity um, that, I mean, you seem to be suggesting as we wind up the previous segment, we may be sort of like people who want to go on vacation somewhere without really having learned very much about our immediate neighborhood, that, that we may not understand what life on Earth really means. That, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, I, up until now, uh, the techniques that uh, microbiologists have used to study these uh, little microbes are customized to life as we know it. Uh, so they're not very good at finding life as you don't know it. Uh, that is, if you go looking for A, you're going to find A and not B. Now, uh, the reasoning is very clear. If it is the case, as so many people seem to believe, that life pops up readily on an Earth-like planet, uh, and therefore the universe will be teeming with it, that seems to be the fashionable view, hmm. uh, then no planet is more Earth-like than Earth itself. So surely life should have started many times over right here on our home planet. Well, perhaps it did. Has anybody actually looked? Well, the answer is no, because, as I said, uh, the techniques for studying microbiology are customized to life as we know it. Supposing you had a different form of microbial life with different biochemistry. And I'll give you a very simple example if you're wondering what I mean by that. Uh, all known life uses amino acids that are uh, left-handed. Uh, that is, if you look at them in a mirror, their form is different. Uh, so all life uses left-handed 
amino acids and right-handed sugars. Uh, we can imagine another form of life around the other way, right-handed amino acids and left-handed sugars. Mirror life, if you like. Its biochemistry uh, would simply be a mirror image of that that known life uses. Uh, and so uh, that could exist all around us in microbial form. We would have noticed it otherwise. Uh, but no, nobody has really taken too much trouble to, to look for it. So I, I think we should go look for life right under our noses. Uh, it's obviously a long shot, but it's much cheaper than going to Mars or, or beyond. Well, no, another way um, of, um, of talking about this, Brian, uh, is is to think about the Earth bias, so to speak, that, you know, often when scientists talk about what does life need? Well, it needs a liquid environment. It needs suitable temperatures for complex molecules to form. It needs a source of energy uh, and an environment that supports some kind of uh, evolution. Um, But that's that's kind of Earth centric, right? I mean, I would imagine as someone who works in the imaginative realm, you're willing to throw some of that some of that out and think a little bit more, not only out of the box, but off the planet. Certainly, science fiction does use uh, science, scientific understanding as a springboard to launch into more fanciful ideas. But it usually it tr- because the science is part of the science fiction term, right? Mm-hmm. And Car- uh, Carl Sagan once referred to exactly what you're talking about. He called it carbon chauvinism. <laughs> you know, we have obviously the point was made in your show already that we have one data point about life right here on Earth, mm-hmm. but we can imagine. I mean, our our that data point says life is carbon based, but we can imagine that. We, uh, science fiction likes to imagine silicon-based life, boron-based life. And carbon makes a lot of sense because it's so prevalent because it's versatile. But uh, also water. Water on Earth is an efficient solvent, but we can imagine, have imagined ammonia-based life, liquid methane-based life, liquid hydrogen, which is interesting. And it, it, what's, what will be interesting is if there's going to be a, uh, a crossroads where science fiction speculations meet uh, actual impending discoveries. Uh, I've always been ex- excited about Titan, the moon of Saturn, mm. which if life is there, it could be methane-based. So, uh, yeah, we, it is a little freedom with science fiction to try to vault off of what we know into what is possible. Um, and so, Lee, what about that? We, we're constantly talking about Earth-like planets. We're talking about the Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold, everything's just right. Um, is, are we limiting our thinking about this too much? I don't think so. We have to start somewhere, right? Um, and, and so l- let me just give you a few examples. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about how, while NASA may or may not be looking for life on Mars, uh, we certainly have spent billions of dollars sending spacecraft there. This is a planet right next door that we have rovers. We have ba- basically jeeps driving around on it, on its surface, taking pictures and sniffing mole- the air and, and analyzing rocks. And we don't know whether or not life is there. Mm-hmm. And we're looking for Earth-like life in that case. Um, I, I think we have to be really careful about broadening our search too much because we probably won't make any headway because we can always imagine that there's going to be some other, other form that life could take. Um, you know, so especially when you're dealing with something that's outside of the solar system or, or much farther away, whether, whether that's Titan um, around Saturn or, or uh, an Earth-like planet around a nearby star, uh, we are going to have much, 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 much less data for a very long time about all these places. And so when you are dealing with that small amount of data, it, it does make sense, I think, to just to kind of start from what you know as, as a beginning point um, and, and, and use the example of Earth-like life. Uh, you know, another thing, of course, is that physics and chemistry, as far as we know, don't change throughout the universe. Whether we're here or on the other side of the observable universe, um, 
chemistry and, and physics are the same. So uh, if you look at something like, uh, like, like photosynthesis, oxygenic photosynthesis, the way that plants use uh, water and sunlight to uh, lock carbon from the air in their bodies and release oxygen, uh, that is uh, something that is energetically favorable when you have an environment like Earth, no matter where you are. So, so I think the better way is just to really constrain our search at, at the beginning to things that we're familiar with, planets that are like Earth, and, and only maybe once we've really gotten a good handle on that, which could take centuries or millennia, um, really, really, really start, start pouring tons and tons of, of our, of our uh, limited pie into, um, into these other more speculative things. All right. Well, Lee Billings, great to visit with you, editor at Scientific American and author of Five Billion Years of Solitude, The Search for Life Among the Stars. So, Brian Trent, maybe you can sort of walk us through, as people um, try to imagine things, to Lee's point of things you're familiar with, well, people go even a little bit further, right? As, as science fiction writers trying to think about and introduce the world to the notion that there might be other kinds of beings, the first thing I think they started with were like a kind of monster, right? Yeah, the one of the the very arguably the first alien depicted in what we would qualify as modern science fiction would have been Voltaire's story Macromagus in 1752. Pretty much sounded like a French Enlightenment era philosopher, but he was thousands of feet tall, hundreds of years old, and comes to Earth, uh, basically observing our life the way we would observe uh, microbes, for instance. And then, of course, H.G. Wells introduced not only a life form that was very different than us, but one that is different on a fundamental level. The, his invading Martians are undone, not by our technology, but by our own uh, microbial life here. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, you brought up a 1937 novel, um, which uh, would be Olaf Stapledon's Starmaker, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, the, t the creature in that, the title entity, the Starmaker itself, uh, is so far in advance of us that it's essentially a god that creates universes, mm. so uh, which is interesting. That's a prevalent concept in science fiction. A lot of movies and TV shows so show alien organisms as roughly the same level of technology as us. It's ex exceedingly unlikely mm. uh, when you think about the technology that we have today, as opposed to a hundred years, a thousand years, a million years ago. Uh, that's an interesting question, actually, that I've wondered about myself is we're looking – SETI looks for radio signals. Well, maybe a really interesting radio signal came by in Earth's neighborhood back during the Jurassic Age. Mm -hmm. Who was listening? So uh, – but it, science fiction has depicted uh, alien life in n numbers of ways from energy creatures to, to essentially Earth-like to very human-like to creatures that earn the moniker alien. So, uh, you know, obviously, I think science fiction, uh, dreaming and thinking and imagining aliens, all of our hopes and fears get projected into this. So in the 1960s, you know, we've come out of World War II. Uh, we're trying to imagine whether there kind of can be a peaceable life on the planet, whether, and we've now got the capacity to destroy the planet. Um, and so Star Trek comes along saying, you know what, you, here's, the, here's the best possibility, which is that, first of all, we're capable of getting along with other species from other planets. Second of all, they're capable of getting along with us. Not that there aren't going to be a few bumpy uh, roads with the Romulans and the Klingons, but ultimately there's this notion, you know, that kind of closely mirrors the League of Nations or the UN or something like that, that there are going to be all these bipedal things out there and we're going to get along with them. I think that's a great point. And certainly that, that brings up uh, the narrative aspect of it. Mm. Aliens tend to be depicted as human in literature because it allows us, as unlikely as it is, it allows us to analyze ourselves, right? I, um, you brought up Star Trek. There was an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Commander Riker beams down to a planet populated by um, androgynous humanoids. 
right? So the where a small segment of the population identified as being male or female, but most of them were androgynous. Now, whatever else the episode is saying about gender identification or sexual orientation, that wouldn't have been the same. It hadn't had the same impact if he had beamed down to a planet of thousand foot tall slugs, mm. you know, or uh, an episode of the original Star Trek series where uh, Captain Kirk encounters a humanoid race, which is uh, white on one side of their bodies and black on the other side of their bodies. And uh, a part of the population has those colors flipped. Well, again, we're talking it's a, it's a um, kind of heavy handed exploration of the absurdities of racism, but it wouldn't have had the same impact if he encountered highly intelligent sea enemies arguing over how many polyps they had. Mm. So it, it allows us narratively to explore but I think um, I think we can do better in science fiction, and certainly there's a lot of examples where we have, where we're looking at creatures that are not bipedal, binocular vision, essentially humans in, in rubber suits. Um, Paul Davies, uh, you chair one of the really important committees about all this, and so we've we've been walked through first contact with the various fictional scenarios. Contact the movie, which Paul Sag- which Carl Sagan was involved in, uh, is maybe the most familiar. So. Paul, you actually probably have kind of a sense of what happens if somebody picks up a signal, if somebody finds something. Uh, I take it you're one of the first people who gets called, uh, and maybe you're the person who calls the president. I I don't know. How does that all happen? Give us a a first contact scenario as you would imagine it to go. Uh, I, I don't think anybody can seriously imagine how it would work out on the day. Part of the problem is... Uh, that if an astronomer were to make a a discovery, pick up a signal from an extraterrestrial source uh, in the time on of manner, then uh, back in the good old days, uh, what would have happened is that they uh, would then have uh, told somebody, would have told somebody else, uh, and the uh, SETI post-detection task group that uh, you mentioned, uh, which I chair, uh, uh, would be brought into the loop fairly early on. But I think in these days of uh, social media and uh, also the ability for people to hack into uh, other systems, keeping quiet about anything for very long, a particular momentous discovery of this sort, uh, would be almost impossible. So I think we have concluded uh, on the task group that any sort of uh, protocol you might like to put in place, like, you know, obviously you first got to check the discovery with other astronomers then you have to inform various authorities like the government uh, of the country in which the radio telescope is situated and then the International Astronomical Union and then the United Nations. You know, it goes on like that. I think all that would spin out of control pretty rapidly. All right. You know what? We're going to grab a quick break here. We've got one final segment uh, coming. Uh, I'm very distressed to find out that uh, it'll be on Twitter before we can even get ourselves organized here. But uh, that's the way things are. We'll come back with more of Brian Trent and more of Paul Davies. We'll add one more voice to our conversation. me that after waiting for life from other planets, all we got was one microbe? One lousy microbe? That's so... Hold on, there's a bug on this table. That's so ridiculous. What do you mean that was the microbe? My bad. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our intern is Tiana Duquette. Big happy hugs to Katie Talarski. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jody Foster. 
For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff being probed, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. And now, back to Colin. So this is our conversation about extraterrestrial life. And the last part of this conversation that we do want to have, well, you know, you could sort of go, I mean, okay, Einstein meant something very different, I think, when he said that the only important question was, is the universe a friendly place or not? He didn't mean, are there bugs out there that want to kill us or bugs that want to show up and lick our faces? I think he sort of meant more like the actual quantum structure of the universe. Is it a friendly place or not? But we often do ask ourselves that question, Uh, um, not the quantum question, but the question of, well, if there's anybody out there, uh, are they? nice. (laughs) Do they like us? Do they want to meet us? And so um, Brian Trent, before we uh, add the theologian to the conversation, this is something that science fiction writers have grappled with in every, they've imagined every possible scenario, right? Yeah, there's been a lot of of things explored. Arthur C. Clarke famously said, two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not. Both are equally terrifying. Mm -hmm. And the argument has been made that any species that has the ambition to get off of its world into space might very well be descended by pre- from predators that might have that, that driving force. So, But at the same time, the universe is a big place. As far as we understand it, the light, light speed cannot be overcome. So we're probably safe on that score for a while. All right. So Celia Dean Drummond, a professor of theology at Notre Dame University um, and the author of over two dozen books, including Wonder and Wisdom, Conversations in Science, Spiritual, Spirituality and Theology. So maybe before you speak, we should begin uh, with a little bit of the conversation in the movie a Contact, uh, where Jodie Foster, who's the scientist, and Matthew McConaughey, who's the transcendentalist, so to speak, uh, have a, a conversation about what this means, what happens if there's life somewhere else. Do you believe in God, Dr. Arroway? As a scientist, I uh, rely on empirical evidence, and uh, in this matter, I I don't believe that there is data either way. So your answer would in fact be that you don't believe in God? (laughs) I I just, I don't understand the relevance of the question. Dr. Arroway, 95% of the world's population believes in a supreme being in one form or another. I believe that makes the question more than relevant. So, Celia Dean Drummond, welcome to this conversation. I would assume that you think the question is relevant, too. But is would the discovery of life from someplace else uh, substantially affect most theology, or is most theology poised somehow to incorporate a discovery like that? Uh, well, what, what's very interesting, I think, is that right back at the very earliest stages of the, of the Church, um, Nicholas of Cusa, for example, thought there were could be extraterrestrials, um, somewhere out there. Um, so, And then he thought that maybe those beings were rather better beings than we are, that perhaps didn't go through the fall of humanity in the way that Adam and Eve did. So I don't think that this is a, a particularly new idea for theologians. Um, he was one of the very early writers in the Patristic Church. Uh, and then, of course, there was William Durham as well, writing in the, in, in the, in the 18th century, who also uh, thought developed a full sort of astro-theology. So I, um, I think there, there have been discussions around this topic for some time. Uh, what's different, of course, is that now we've found the possibility of habitable planets um, out there, although we haven't necessarily found any life yet. But, you know, the, so the science is beginning to catch up with the theology rather than the other way around. 
So, you know, uh, I think it was uh, J.B.S. Haldane when, who asked uh, if he, he is a biologist, knew anything about the mind of God, answered, he is extraordinarily fond of beetles. Um, and, but if you read scripture um, and, and try to figure out something about the mind of God, he seems extraordinarily fond of and extremely interested in terrestrial life, especially humankind. Uh, it's what he cares about the, the most poignantly. Uh, he gives his only begotten son uh, for a, a process uh, of atonement and redemption. So, I mean, does any of that get unsettled at a theological level? level because if, in fact, there's like all kinds of other dramas going on in other parts of the universe? Yes, I mean, I, I think that is, a, is an interesting question. Although, if you do go back to the, the Genesis account and look at the story of creation, you, you find that actually the apex of creation isn't humanity, but it's the Sabbath. In other words, it's a celebration of the of the whole of the created world and the, the creaturely world as such in relationship with human beings. And so we are, as it were, like a, uh, stewards of, of that creation, but it's not the pinnacle of the creation. The pinnacle is, is the whole of the created order. And um, so I think we need to see it in that context. Of course, the, the Bible has been interpreted in a very human-centered or anthropocentric way, um, and uh, and that's one of the one of its problems. But the the latest encyclical, Laudato Si, uh, made it clear that actually uh, God is praised by all creatures and, and not just humans. So so that tradition of, of celebrating creation, of celebrating the the reflection of God um, in, in God's likeness in in other creatures, is is also an ancient tradition. Your your question though about well why did God become incarnate in human and not become say a, a dolphin or something like that. Well, I think that, you know, humans are, you know, the most intelligent in terms of their reasoning powers, and so it would make sense for God to become incarnate in, in, in a human being. But that doesn't mean to say that God couldn't become incarnate somewhere else. Um, in fact, traditionally, there have been two different possibilities for theologians to take. One would say, well, Christ's incarnation is sufficient for the whole of the universe, but others would say, well, maybe God is incarnate in other universes as well. So, it, it all, But we're not in a position to know that, so we can't really make a decision about that choice until we have a better idea of maybe what the science might be telling us as to whether there are other beings out there that are intelligent or not. Paul Davies is, some, is somebody who thinks long and hard about what would, will happen in the event of first contact, which may or may not ever happen. But if it does happen, do you think about, do you care about, does your team worry about the implications of this, just kind of for the psyches of the human race, uh, uh, given some of the things that, that Celia is talking about right now? I think Celia has expressed it very well, the position uh, in Christianity, uh, and also by touching on uh, Genesis, uh, she covers uh, Judaism. I don't think there's a problem for Judaism, uh, Islam, uh, certainly not Buddhism or Hinduism, about the possibility of advanced extraterrestrial beings. But I do think, uh, as Celia has explained, there is a special issue for Christians because uh, the essence of Christianity is that God became incarnate, took on human flesh uh, to save humankind. Christianity, if it's about anything at all, is about salvation. And you have to ask who gets to be saved. Uh, and there's always been a, an issue in Christianity about who is included in this salvation. Uh, so, for example, uh, today we might want to know, well, what about Neanderthals that uh, were, were very close to Homo sapiens but died out uh, 20,000, 30,000 years ago? And the other 
species of, of hominins. You know, are they included in, in salvation? Where it gets really tricky is if we have extraterrestrial beings who are so far in advance of us, not just uh, technologically and scientifically, but maybe in some sense spiritually as well, do they get to be saved? And, and if so, how? And this is where you really do get into the conundrum that Celia was mentioning. Do you have multiple incarnations, which is a heresy in some branches of Christianity? Uh, do you have a, a single salvation? Is uh, humanity uh, picked out as a special species in the universe uh, for, for this honor? Um, uh, the, n- nobody really has the answers. And it just seems to me that Christians would do well to deliberate a lot more on these issues. As, as Celia has mentioned, there was a lively debate within the Christian church uh, hundreds of years ago when this, uh, the possibility of extraterrestrial beings was first mooted. But it's gone really rather quiet in recent years. And uh, just the mere possibility that we may not be alone in the universe ought to be enough uh, to get theologians to take this issue more seriously. Well, I mean, Pope Francis does seem to be taking it somewhat seriously and at least suggesting that he be open to baptizing Martians, if I may have uh, I may have misstated that, but something close. So, um, Brian Trent, um, uh, obviously another possibility would be that extraterrestrials would show up and say, you believe, you believe what? What are you talking about? And and that's that's been explored in a lot of science fiction as well. Personally, I think that uh, if uh, history is any indication, um, if we did discover that there's advanced societies, technically, usually the advanced society tends to dominate or um, even unintentionally, uh, you know, dethrone the the other civilizations, the uh, more primitive ones. I think that a lot of our own history has been, um, as science discovers more and more about the universe the certain theological assumptions are dethroned. And we have the Earth is not the center of the universe anymore. It's only the third planet, um, that we're actually in a fairly small corner of the galaxy. And then, oh, by the way, Darwin comes along and says, well, actually, you're also just one particular animal that got really smart through due specific extinction cycles and predator-prey dynamics. So I think the discovery of life beyond this sphere is going to be pretty devastating. Mm -hmm. Having said that, religions adapt, and I think that they would. And then Freud came along and said, you know what? Not having made you people the center of anything, that may have been an act of good taste. Uh, All right. We have to stop here. This is all such fascinating stuff. We do want to thank so much uh, Celia Dean Drummond uh, for joining us to talk about the theological part, Paul Davies for the cosmological uh, part of it, uh, and Brian Trent for the science fiction part of it. Also, thanks to Lee Cummings. Thanks especially to Josh Nalea, who um, imagined this show. Uh, and uh, thought about all the different directions it could go in. And then we did it. So uh, we've guided our spaceship back to its home base. Uh, Thanks for going along on the ride with us. And the winner of the Miss Universe 2016 pageant is Miss Greenland. Dang it. I swear, these things are rigged.